Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Uh, it is great uh, to be back. Uh, my name is Robert. I am a ministry associate with Ministry to State. I'm here with my good friend, Will, also a ministry associate with Ministry to State. Breaking news coming across our phones as we hit record. Um, the latest victim of cancel culture is Millard Fillmore. Not, not the name you were expecting to see. Apparently, he is, his name is going to be stripped from public buildings in Buffalo, New York, for his support of the Compromise of 1850. Which is a shame in a number of ways, but one of them for me, perhaps the biggest, is it's definitely the funnest presidential name. It is, say. easily. I mean, I picture a duck. I think- Because it's close enough to Mallard. Well, M- Millard Fillmore is one of those presidents, you know, in that, that range of, of presidents in that era where it's really hard to remember all of them, uh, you know? Uh, but you can always sort of like get Millard Fillmore because of the name. The and name? Like, oh, yeah. Like, wouldn't you love to say, hey, who's coming over for dinner? Millard Fillmore. It's like, oh, that nerd. I'm so <laughs> glad he's coming. <laughs> so, yes, he is the latest victim of cancel culture. Definitely a... A curveball, not one I would suspect, not one, not a name that gets brought up a lot uh, right. today, but uh, very interesting indeed. Um, you can check out that. Is Henry Clay going to be kicked out too? Oh, for sure. That dude's, there's no way that guy survives after this. I like that. I like Henry Clay. I know. My beau ideal, uh, as, as Abraham Lincoln called him. So yeah, uh, but this is going to be a fun episode. Interesting to see if it, if it extends, if, if, if other places beyond Buffalo decide to I don't know where else is Miller Fillmore very prominent in America. Do you know? I, I don't know. There's I probably know. like a Fillmore someplace in America, like a Fillmore, Ohio or something. And yeah, that, that probably won't make it through, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, we've got a fun episode planned. I'm excited for it. Uh, Will, you had a great idea uh, for a title of hot takes and hard opinions. So I think w- w- we want to get to that. Uh, but I think it's first important before we sort of get into conversations about what's going on in the country and different developments uh, and different political issues. Um, Will, I think you had a good idea for se- sort of setting some theological foundations, some, some theological context for us, uh, especially as it relates to the imminent frame. I am no theology expert or a philosopher. Will, you are both. And so I thought uh, this would be a good time to kick it over to you and sort of, why don't you lay the groundwork for sort of what you're thinking? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And by imminent frame, uh, I'm kind of referencing a work by two theologians in their history of 20th century theology. And at the beginning of that work, they say that the 20th century theology is interesting in that there is an oscillation throughout uh, between a transcendence, a focus on transcendence in theology, and a focus on imminence in theology. And, And I think right now at the early parts of the 20th century, first quarter of the 21st century, we are in the middle of, I think, a very imminent frame for our thinking. And in very least in public discourse and the way that theology is publicly spoken about in the priorities and preferences and expectations for solutions, I think it is very much an imminent frame right now, um, as much as there has also been a tendency for a transcendent framing of theology. And the issue is that both of them, both of these oscillations require overcorrecting. And it's the typical pendulum swing that we witness in history. And so that that idea of the imminent frame comes from their work and the uh, contrast to a transcendent frame and thinking about theology. So when we talk about uh, imminence, so what is the thing that is imminent? What's the thing that's, that's animating this force? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think historically, if we're going to look at the imminent frame and maybe its iteration it's in today is to go back to uh, liberal Protestant theology, starting with a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, who sought to remove Christianity and religion from this transcendent objective truth to a more subjective internalized feeling. So a feeling of the divine is what made religion to be real and true. And that continued for a long time through other scholars that, that bled into um, higher biblical scholarly criticism of um, the reliability, inerrancy, trustworthiness of scripture, uh, the divinity of Christ. J. Gresham Machen, who uh, is a great 20th century Christian theologian, looks at six different ways, basically, that liberal theology is actually not... And, and it's so it's so unfortunate actually that we're so divided right now that when I use the phrase liberal theology, I feel the need to really press and say I am not talking about political categories at all or people who have more left leaning political uh, priority. Like that is that is not what I'm saying at all. I'm talking about the theological end of the spectrum that focuses on the person. And to tie it into um, the corrective, Karl Barth is famous for talking about the liberal theologians, and he says that uh, one cannot speak of God by speaking of man in a loud voice. And what he's saying by that is that liberal theology has so immanentized itself and has so focused itself on man and who man is, that the only way to get to God is to basically like extrapolate and idealize these elements of man and his power and his, and his experiences and uh, what God must be like from that. But Bart came on the scene as a pushback to this eminent theology and instead focused on through his work in neo-orthodoxy, the transcendence of God and the higher uh, nature of God. And what's interesting also, and I think this is something for our own day, um, the eminent theology of, of the liberal side of things ended or allowed Karl Barth to have such a strong voice, not only because he was a genius, but because of the absolute devastation of World War I. Like, you know, if you look at a history of World War I and look at the way that people in England and America were talking about it, the confidence that both sides had, that God was on their side, and that their technology was going to save them, the belief before that actually a world war wouldn't even be possible because no one would be foolish enough to declare war with all this industrial might that was there. Well, all this disillusionment results from World War I and Karl Barth blows up, basically ends the 19th century by his publication in 1919 of his commentary on Romans, which is really what, what ushered him into the scene. He was, a, um, he was a small pastor, and he wrote this book that launched him into international fame. And what he found was that the liberal theology and its eminence was pretty useless in caring for people. He found that like it didn't help anymore. It wasn't very useful. And so instead, he sought to talk about God as being transcendent and above. Um, I guess maybe it's a good idea now to tie this in so we can bring this all in. One of the consequences of his theology of transcendence and the orthodoxy was that it was almost apophatic. And by that, um, apophatic theology is this idea that you can only speak of God in the negative. Well, God is not like this. He is not right, like right, this. Right, right. God actually is like is is if not impossible, extremely difficult. Um, and so instead there's a resistance to, um, to like propositional knowledge of God and instead a more focus on the existential encounter. 
which is an interesting result, I think, from the transcendence. But that is kind of where it swung. And, and that, that is a transcendent fame, frame pushing back against a more historical uh, liberal theology of a, a very imminent frame. Yeah. What's kind of interesting to sort of drive this maybe to um, a point where maybe our listeners who are probably coming from a more reformed background can sort of figure out where they sit in the spectrum is, I, I mean, I think of, you know, what does covenant theology teach? What, what do I, what do we learn? And so we kind of learn uh, in the Bible that, that God is both transcendent. He transcends his creation. He is creator over it. Um, and at the same time, he chooses to enter in relationship with it. Right. And so it's not that like the imminent frame folks and the transcendent frame folks, you know, it's not like one's comprehensively or holistically right or wrong. It's that there is, it, maybe this, maybe this is unfair. I don't know, but it's like, the answer is really, well, what is, what does the God of scriptures say? And the God of scriptures is sort of like both very present and personal and also creator of the universe and reigns on a high. Is, would that be a fair way of sort of characterizing that? Yeah, I think, you know, in the same way, um, I, I mentioned Karl Barth first because he is the one who really is the beginning of 20th century theology, but also because he's probably the best figure to demonstrate the transcendent end of the spectrum in theology of the, from the 20th century. The other side is on the imminent frame. And then I think this is more what we're seeing today is more uh, a great example. I think probably the best is the liberation theology tendency. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, there, there are multiple iterations of it around that exist. You get everything from South American to queer to feminist um, and other, other forms, black theology in America and, and actually internationally. But What's interesting is is that while transcendent and Bart focuses on God's otherness and his how great and grand he is, eminence focuses on hey God cares about the poor and the needy and we have to care about them. And so in certain aspects, like there are really really good things that need to be remembered there. However, they are often done at the expense of the other, and I think not even at the expense of the other, but I think expense of biblical truth right of a revelation of what god has said about himself and his word given to us mm -hmm. so i think that that gives us sort of a good idea of, of a good framework for how we can think about these topics in light of what's going on around us and you've identified i think some rightly some places especially in our politics where you can see uh, an imminent frame or a, a more imminent way of thinking about things has started to influence the, the sort of the national discourse on on issues. What are some examples? Gosh, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, for the imminent, I mean, it is it is almost crushingly, uh, you know, like you have the big bang and the expansion of the universe, and so all of a sudden everything dissipates, or the big crunch, everything comes in and expands. You know, transcendence almost. If we don't have God near us and he's utterly transcendent, we almost just kind of drift off like a vapor. Uh, with the eminence, you feel crushed by this oppression of the immediate and the tyranny of the now. Uh, and the an over-realized eschatology and that an over-realized hope or belief of what is humanly possible on this earth. I, this morning, I was reading an article from The Atlantic, and one of the, the, the authors was talking about his defunding the police. And one of the things that he said in, in this article about his desire to defund the police, he, he's like, look, I don't mean defund the police in the sense of reinvent it. 
or to correct it or to, um, to improve it. I mean the eventual, and this is what he says in the article, he says the eventual abolishment of police and policing where that is no longer possible. And I think when reading that, we have to ask, well, why would someone say that? What does someone think is possible? Well, I think in an imminent sense, one believes that all the consequences of bad and evil, of injustice, of wrongs, of oppression are simply the result of nothing other than humanly made systems. That there is no force of evil or darkness that is causing this, that it is only systems. And that if we fix the systems, there will never be need for anyone and no one will ever break the law again. Yeah. Well, your point about systems is interesting because while it's true that there is a lot of evil and bad things in the world because of bad systems, we don't take the next necessary step of acknowledging why are systems bad? And and you realize that the the reason is not because you know we can ju- we just need to pull a lever here and press a button there, that th- there's an animating force which is sin that is the reason why these things are corrupted and tainted the way that they are. The question isn't necessarily only how do we fix the systems. The question also has to be how do we deal with sin, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's not a policy question, that's not a political question, you know that's a gospel question. That's a gospel issue. And so then we have to be really realistic about, well, what does the gospel say? And how does the Bible paint the spread of the gospel in our world? And the Bible is very clear that there are going to be people that don't respond to the gospel, right? And so we've got to sort of hold those things in tandem together, which I think can be really difficult because it sounds defeatist. It sounds like we're saying God can't accomplish these things or that the power of the gospel isn't strong enough to tr- transform these things. And we have to be careful that we're not leveling the blame on God, but leveling the blame on well, what's the ulti- who's ultimately to blame. Well, the ultimate person to blame is Adam in the garden, right? It's, it's human sin. I mean, we've got to be really, we've got to be really clear about these kind of things. Right. And when we look at Genesis three and we look at what happened when Adam fell, the horizontal and the vertical axes were both corrupted were both cracked. Man was to die and lost communion with God. And what happened? Well, family and work and all that derives from those will become painful and hard and not always fruitful and will 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 break our backs and our hearts a lot of times. And so sin, again, it's not an either or. It is a both and element here. And I think we do a disservice both to ourselves and to our neighbors when we forget that there is both the transcendent and the imminent elements of sin at play because of the fall and um, in our world, in our world today. And uh, again, it affects policy in that we will end up with very, very foolish ideas. Yeah. We don't understand who man is. Well, yeah. And one of the, one of the places I see it coming out, you know, you brought up the policy example with, the Atlantic piece about defunding the police. I think another thing that you and I have both talked about is um, the way that this, this eminent frame gets applied to voting and the way that we treat our political engagement. If you read some of the, you know, the, the pieces coming out from both sides, I mean, we need to be really clear about it. Like uh, from both the, the left and the right. I mean, you know, this is how you get the language of this is the most important election ever. Right. Isn't it interesting that every 
four years, we're being, we're told this is the most important lecture you'll ever face. Well, the only place that that comes from, right, is an imminent frame, right? It's, it's imagining that all of our problems, everything that's facing the country right now can be fixed if we all just vote this way. And I just think that that's extremely naive. And I think most people would agree when you put it in that kind of context, we'd all sort of be like, that sounds foolish. It is amazing. I do not remember election in my lifetime. That was not the most important election. <laughs> that, that has been said every, for as many elections as I can remember. And what's also, this should do something to just, you know, at least take some of the wind out of the sails of that argument. But both sides have won in that time. Right. You know, it's not like if you're a Republican, the Democrats have won every election since 96 or 2009, you know, and they're just steamrolling. Or if you're, if you're a Republican, you know, the Democrats have won. If you, so um, that should do something to, to kind of say, hey, maybe actually, yes, these elections are important, but um, again, not everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket with this result. And I mentioned the defund the police, and I think that's more of a left issue. I would like to add, I think for the right, um, you get the completely deregulated markets. Right. Ayn Rand idea that if you just let capitalism do its thing, everybody will be better off. And I, if I believe in the sinfulness of man, I can't get behind that either. Right, exactly. That's another way of thinking about, you know, having an imminent frame. I want to go back to the voting thing because one thing I think we've experienced, um, I mean, I know I definitely have on Twitter, I've sort of seen this obsession uh, of both people, uh, let's, let's say in the congregations, and then like the pastors themselves sort of address like, well, how, how should a Christian vote? Like, what is... What is the Christian vote this year? Huh. And I've sort of been wrestling with that because I'm starting to kind of realize that like the action of voting can't possibly bear the weight of those implications. Does that make sense? I- I unpack that. Keep going. Like I can't mine scripture for a clear exegesis of this is how Robert Hassler ought to vote in the 2020 election. Does that make sense? Like, I just, I just don't know if that's right. there. And there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think is because we can care a lot about voting because we live in a democratic Republic and we vote every four years. You know, some of us vote every year, right. On stuff. But the reality is that voting wasn't a thing when scripture was written, especially, I mean, definitely not for the people that were, that scripture is addressing the, the poor Jewish people that Jesus was ministering to did not have a vote in anything, right? So we need to be clear about that. But I think also that there's this also clear realization in scripture that, that the kingdom of God is not a political program, right? It, it's can't, it can't be something I change at the voting booth. It has to be a holistic restructuring of the way that I live my life in every way that it's integrated with relationships in society. And so certainly voting is an element of that, but it can't possibly bear the full weight of that. Right. So when I see, when I hear the question sort of like, you know, what's the Christian vote of for 2020? I'm kind of at a loss for words because I don't really know how to answer it. 
And I, I know you've heard some different answers and we've sort of been dissatisfied with some and kind of left wanting with others, but I don't know really know what the answer, like, so if somebody were to say, Will, what's the Christian vote of 2020? Like, what would you say? Well, I, I was talking to my dad the other day and a uh, sermon he was, had listened to. The pastor had said, look, we can't allow our church to split over this. You have good friends who are going to fall on both sides of the aisle. But the advice was you need to pray read your Bible and decide on your biblical principles and what's most important for you. Red flag. Red flag. I think, uh, yeah. In one sense, I think it's probably done from an honest place of not wanting for there to be division and divide by saying, Hey, this is how the Holy spirit spoke to them. But what that does is that hyper permanizes that personalizes that person's faith, puts it on there. And then, neglects the fact that people are social, which means they're going to drift to people who are like them and go towards them, which means you're going to have these little subgroups and cliques that are going to form rather than being more assertive and focusing on all of the issues. And maybe not even all the issues, but saying, look, there are, your Bible is clear for what is needed for a life of salvation, a life of holiness. Um, And there are other issues, but I think the danger of saying your biblical priorities one sense is like, hey, what are you doing up there? If, if you're not willing to tell me what are the biblically important things. Well, yeah, this is where I think for me, First Timothy 2 is really helpful. And the way of, you know, let me, I'll go ahead and read it. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So people in, in political authority that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So I think that, like, if we're talking about, well, what is the Christian vote in 2020? We tend to attach all of these little, like, policy programs onto that, or, or at least implied in that, that question. So we'll say, what's the Christian vote for 2020? So we'll say, okay, what's the vote that, that best gets rid of abortion or what is the vote that breaks down racial or gender barriers in our country or what is the best case for religious freedom? Like, so we'll sort of like attach all these little, like little policy uh, programs onto that vote. And I'm not saying that those things aren't important because they are, but I think we miss the, the, the point uh, when we only think about it in those terms and we don't think about, well, what is what is God's real intention for our lives as a, as part of the American church in uh, 2020? And I think we need to think of ter- the terms that Paul lays out of living a peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified life. And well, that doesn't sound very American. But the but the beauty of that that statement, right, is that that can be achieved in very many different ways. It doesn't have to be just one set of policy programs. Does that make sense? Like there's, yes. there's a lot of ways and that can be done at a federal level and at a state level. It can be done by political authorities and it can be done by cultural institutions. Like there's this sort of, what sort of really drives me nuts is we, we sort of think of our politics as this very linear sort of like input A gets output B and like sort of the beauty of political life that as God that has ordained it is to sort of be this like sort of, web is tapestry that of different people and different organizations doing different things and helping others. And it's much more this 
conglomerate thing, then this sort this sort of like I vote this so I you know I vote this way so I get this thing. I don't know. That's kind of how I'm approaching this as I'm thinking as we get closer to this election because like every single day I have to read a new piece about like why my vote is the most important, you know, the most important vote I'll ever cast. And I'm sitting here going like, well, I already know which way my state's going to go. So like, is it? <laughs> well, I, and I think this takes us back to the beginning of this episode and how we mentioned hard, uh, hot takes and hard opinions uh, with this hyper emphasis of the imminent, this over realized eschatology, this expectation that with man we can do greatly and that we'll be able to rid the world of all evils. And again, you and I are not saying that we should not fight against evils, but there is an honest, sober understanding of the brokenness of the world, an understanding of proximate justice, of proximate good, of proximate politics. Uh, There is none who is good but God. Um, And so with that, I think again, diving into Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or my goodness, walking around Washington, DC, things feel like life and death struggles. You're either all good or all bad. I think the way that people have responded to Jerry Falwell and Jen Hatmaker and the way people have responded to um, certain issues. I mean, there's a total allegiance that is required here. And it really is just a world of hard, you know, hot takes and hard opinions, but they're, they're viewed as absolute irrevocable truth. Sadly, it's not sustainable. It doesn't create a kind environment for people, but um, uh, we were talking about the Jerry Falwell, Jen Hatmaker thing earlier. And I think that contrast in the way people have responded to that uh, is pretty remarkable to me in that. uh, And I think we've noticed this on Twitter in general, uh, a lot of Christians are shaming other Christians. Um, and there's a certain, for so, and evangelical, and I want to say evangelical elites, and what I mean by that is the ones that have the most followers. And like, there's a certain group that seems at least a certain subset of them are allowed to criticize and shame, but not others. Uh, I mean, I don't know what what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting. We like Twitter has sort of like designated the quote unquote evangelical leaders or the evangelical elites, though that's not something that's ever like really been clearly defined. And, you know, how does, how is someone an evangelical leader? Is it based on their follower count on Twitter or is it their spots on Fox news? Or is it like how many people actually read or engage with their ideas? Because if we're based on different metrics, like it might be the ultimate congregationalist tool out there. Probably. Yes. <laughs> but like, let's consider uh, Jerry Falwell, for example. So Jerry Falwell is often discussed in the media as this sort of evangelical leader. I'd say, I know, you know, I've run in these circles. I don't know a lot of Christians who like actively engage with Jerry Falwell's ideas. They don't look to him as someone that they're, you know, listening to every word on bated breath to figure out what I should do next. They don't attend his church. They didn't go to Liberty. So it's kind of this weird definition that we've been, that we've given him. But all that to say is that Jerry Falwell with his scandal will then be criticized by other Christians on Twitter. And so it'll be sort of prompted as like, that's something that the evangelical community needed to do. 
then the question is like, well, who's speaking for who? You know what I mean? Uh, when the when the Jerry Falwell scandal happened, there were a lot of responses that were sort of like, it's a really horrible thing. I'm really sad it happened. But like, I think maybe people are overplaying the the damage that his witness has on on the church because maybe he doesn't speak for as many people as we think he does or we're told he does. And I'm not trying to, what I'm not trying to do here is I'm not trying to little what happened with the Jerry Falwell scandal because what happened was awful and, and terrible. And if I was a student at Liberty University, I'd be extremely upset. And if I was a member of that church, I'd be extremely upset. But because I'm too many degrees removed, I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry if it's not the thing that I'm tweeting about every day. You know what I mean? What, yeah, what you're saying, I, from, I think, is that there's this pressure to have an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm. But in certain times, it's okay to not have this opinion and this strong take on things. And I think what I've seen also is um, a lack of uniformity and a Christian response to people where I think the news about Jen Hatmaker is sad. And I think that we need to pray for her and to be sad. I think the other side is people are somewhat gleeful at what has happened to Jerry Falwell Jr., which look, he needs to be removed. He should not be there at all. He is not a good leader. He is not a good representative. I don't, even if it were a secular university, I'd be like, that man does not need to be in that place of leadership. There, there's nothing about that that is good. But again, there's this disunity. And in addition to this, I mean, you sent me this, this picture of these people who are outside of their home who were having a picnic. It was like 50 people having a picnic during COVID. And this Christian author was explicitly said, yes, I am trying to shame them for what they're doing. I mean, the number of times where I see Christians who are like, they will, seriously, it's almost, it's almost shocking. Like at one minute, we'll talk about neighbor love and the importance of loving the other. And then the next minute, it is like this unbridled vitriol against the person that they disagree with and isn't falling in line with what they want. And, um, probably getting dangerously close to doing that myself right here but I, man it, it is not good it is yeah. not healthy and it honestly it's intellectually cheap yeah and i mean it, it just exposes like how damaging things like twitter and social media are for you know our our christian fellowship with one another so i i want to take that also and i want to tie this back into the imminent frame and the hot takes and hard opinions idea here i don't remember if i said this earlier but the the big statement for liberation theology is God has a preferential option for the poor. And that's true. The problem with liberation theology is the tools that they use to define who are the poor and the oppressed and that they limit it for the poor and the oppressed. But in, in one sense, there's also a lot of good in that and that God has a preferential option for the poor for those who are hurting, for the needy, for the children, for the addict, for the lonely. Um, there is room in God's kingdom for all of these good things to be pursued. Uh, and in fact, Jesus flips those categories on their head when he starts talking about who are the poor and the needy. And I, I think truthfully, if you and I, if we do not view ourselves as the poor and needy, we've missed the gospel. Because without Jesus in my sin, I am dead. I am on the side of the road at the bottom of the ocean, dead, lifeless. And Jesus came to call the sick and the sinner 
not those who think that they're well, because all are sick, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think one thing that I hope for Christians in America as we move forward is to, um, I think one, think more deeply and be cognizant of how we act towards each other, of what we value, and to see the importance of holding these multiple priorities for sure in, in, in tandem. What you seem to be suggesting is that the world could use a few more Miller Fillmore's, some more people willing to compromise. It's kind of what I'm, the vibe oh I'm getting. Oh my gosh, well see done. I, see how I did oh, that? Millard. See how I did that? Oh man, yes. I am a genius. Um, I, I think this has been great. I think it gives me an opportunity to s- interpret everything I'm reading or watching on television through this lens and just sort of be like, you know, is this really what I believe? Is this really what scripture tells me um, about my life and what God has in store for me? And I think that it'll be especially pressing as we, as we approach the election uh, in November. So, all right, we're going to wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to the Will and Rob show. As always, you can follow us on that horrible platform. We just told you to get off of on, called Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. To be fair, to be fair, Robert, we did not explicitly say don't get That's off. That's true. And we yeah. generate, I think we generate a pretty positive community on Twitter. Um, oh my gosh, dude. I think that the number of people whose lives have been bettered is <laughs> incalculable. Um, but please do follow us on Twitter. I'm at RD Hassler. You can follow Will at Stockdale Will. Also, please visit ministrytostate.org. And I'm going to oh. add this real fast. Uh-oh. Please, uh, if you like this episode, share it with your friends, forward it onto them, uh, share it on Twitter, and, and please leave us a review. If you leave us a review, also you can uh, DM us on Twitter. And if you have anything you ever want us to talk about, let us know. And we'd love to do some research to, to think about it and to bring up the topic. So that's the last word I want to say. Awesome. All right, guys, we'll see you all again next week.